At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show KB industry. As always, I am your co-host, Bryony Smith, and I am joined by the ageless and energetic Alan Messick. <laughs> I do love you. Um, thank you. It's always good to be with you. And uh, I'm I'm loving this week because I'm judging a very local show in Hanford, California, which is only an hour and a half, which beats – I love judging in Houston, by the way. But I did Houston on Saturday, and then I flew back and judged a show in Orange County on Sunday in California. And I, I tell you what, we, we've talked about this you know, between us, but COVID <laughs> definitely trained us to be a little more relaxed. And these, these – diehard weekends as rabbit judges are, are sometimes, sometimes tough. Um, what's going on in your part of the world? I've actually had the past weekend and this coming weekend off. Um, oh, lucky you. Yeah, it's a time of year. I actually, I, I take a break because uh, Nathan's birthday and mine, they're a day apart. And if I don't take time off, he won't take time off. And I don't think people should work on their birthdays. Like I don't, I'm old enough where I don't like make a big celebration of my birthday. One of my best friends and I were talking the other day about how our 20-something selves would endlessly mock our now (laughs) selves for the way we celebrate. However, I do maintain people should not work on their birthdays. So mine's on a Saturday, his is on a Sunday. So we've just been hanging out and, you know, we're, of course, in the middle of the NCAA tournament, which I love. Um, Although I've learned this year, I I did a bracket this year. Um, I don't normally um uh, my my team is k-state wildcats i do not bet against my team that is one of my like core principles of life i never bet against my team so unless i think they're going to win it all i don't do a bracket if they're in so i did this year which i don't always and so far i have learned that i need to watch big 10 basketball a little bit more because they've absolutely thrashed my bracket you know kentucky screwed everybody up but um, yeah, the Big Ten has been my kryptonite this year. But anyway, I'm still enjoying the tournament. I like it. It's one of my favorite parts of the year. Right, well, two things here. First of all, um, you totally give a spoiler because I was going to do a birthday thing for you. <laughs> happy birthday, Bryony. This is your birthday episode. And I want to wish you a very happy one this weekend. Uh, celebrating with your husband, who's just one day apart from your birthday. I think that's a match made in heaven if you can do that. And uh, I hope you have your, uh, your good weekend off from, from judging and doing all the normal things that bring us chaos as a birthday should, as you just said. Secondly, um, this thing with the NC- – I don't do sports, but it sounds <laughs> like what you just described when, with bracketing would be like posting a photo of your best rabbit – 
that you're so excited about and then it either dive bombing or you know killing over before the show are we are we with each other on this one Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. You, you know, because every year there are Cinderella teams. Um, You know, we talk about there's only I think only one time maybe a a 16 seed has beaten a one seed. So for those who don't know, there's 64 teams that make the what they call the first round. There's actually some others that get to play in. Um, But so they're seeded. They're broken up into four regions and they're seeded one through 16 in each region. So, you know, you can pretty well count on a, you know, 16 seed is not going to be a one seed. It did happen a few years ago, um, but, you know, it's not very common. Now, 15 seeds and two seeds, that's a, just a little more shaky. But anyway, so you've got like a little bit of, you know, hint when you're choosing your outcome between these games. Um, so, yeah, I did, you know, I picked some good ones. Um I did pick um, I picked Creighton over San Diego State. That was supposed to be a pretty close match. Um, I picked, um, let's see, let me go through my bracket here. There was a couple of 5 and 12s, and that those are actually um, a little bit shakier, although the big upset was 15 seed St. Peter's, which I don't even know who that is, but they beat Kentucky, and that just really messed everybody up. But anyway, it's like <laughs> Nathan's like, you didn't put any money on this, did you? And I'm like, no, it's just, <laughs> it's just for fun. Um, but, but yeah, so my bracket kind of got busted by Iowa, Michigan, and Ohio state. Um, cause I had all those games picked wrong. I just need to pay better attention, but I don't know. I, I it's fun for me because I love K state and I was actually born under a cat sign the night I was born. Oh K state won their game <laughs> in the sweet 16. Um, so I guess it's destiny, but, but I do love it. I mean, I, I just love excitement and competition. It's fun. There's always, like little side stories that come out. Um, one of the games I picked wrong today was I picked um, Loyola Chicago to beat Ohio State, which they did not. But um, Loyola Chicago was a Cinderella team a few years ago, and their big like star was their chaplain, who's a nun named Sister Jean. And she's still really? with the team. Yeah. She was, you know, like 99 years old. Oh, my um, gosh. She'll be a hun- she's 102 years old and she's still there with the team at the tournament this year. Um, so she's their chaplain and she also does scouting reports for them, which I think is awesome. So, so what you're saying is that uh, when you're 102, you'll be going to rabbit shows and judging and also being the K State chaplain. Is that how you say it? Or the you know, I, I I'm thinking the reason she made it to 102 is because she didn't have to deal with men. But... <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if I'll be that fortunate, but you know, it sounds like a fun retirement job. I'll just travel along, be a little old lady cheering the cats on. I'll be there with you. Um, and by the way, you had you had me at competition. You brought me back to this. I don't follow sports, but you had me at competition and side stories, and that brought it back to a rabbit level for me. So I was like, okay, I'm 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 kind of getting this. But for a minute, it was it was kind of like a cat show. Like I just I don't quite know what's going on but (laughs) yeah i mean it's sort of like you know it's sort of like best in show at convention because you have those four groups and then you know you see the the you know projected front runners in each group you know the ones that there's been some buzz about or the ones that the judge looks at a couple times and then you have those four group winners and that's like the big deal the final four um and then you get to best in show so it's kind of like that and everyone picks their favorites within the groups and and yeah it's kind of that lead up i I I don't get it, but I get 
your excitement, and I'm very happy for you. <laughs> and I'm really happy for Nathan because you didn't bet any money on it. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. That makes for a very happy husband. All right. So in this episode, we are going to roll back to 1998. And the reason we chose this year is because our special guests on this episode, that's Dr. Carol Green and Nate Burbridge. They um, had a very interesting uh, kind of diversion and conversion at the same time, which we'll talk about in this episode. But uh, Carol Green joined the ARBA in 1998. And it's actually the time that Nate Burbridge left rabbits for a little while to go on to a scholastic career. And of course he became a lawyer, Um, but they missed each other in their time in rabbits. And that happened in 1998. And of course they got together later on to be one of the most dynamic duos in our industry today. Um, But we chose that year and uh, on a world side of things, we've got a couple kind of interesting events from 98. First of all, back in January, President Clinton became embroiled in the Monica Lewinsky scandal, which if you were living in 98 in the 90s, you remember that very vividly. It was a very interesting time uh, to be uh, you know, an American. Back in April of 1998, uh, there was a communications failure with the Galaxy 4, and 80 to 90% of pagers went out of service. Brian, do you know what a pager is? I do. My dad had one, but I'm guessing some of our young listeners probably won't. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to describe it because I didn't have a pager. It was like, to me, it was something that doctors had. But apparently this was a thing that happened in your house because your dad was a detective, right? Yeah. I mean, cops had pagers too. Um, but I remember um, Sunday nights, we would be at church, and that was when football was playing. I'm a Niners fan, so I would poke him. Because you could actually go on your pager and get like scores from the game. So I'd be like, hey, how's the game going? Oh, gosh, like, back to games. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. I, I, people don't expect this of me, though. <laughs> so no, I don't funny. expect it from you. That's that, that's why it's all very, yeah. Uh, so yeah, pagers they failed in uh, 1998 due to the Galaxy Four failure. Um, in August of 1998, there were two bombings at U.S. embassies uh, in Tanzania and in Kenya. September 8th of 1998, Mark McGuire. And this is a sports thing. You'll be happy. Uh, he he broke the single season home run record. Um, and in October of 1998, John Glenn, here's a space one for you, Bryony. He returns to space. So what do you have wow. for us on the ARBA side? Well, on the ARBA side, a little flashback to our board at the time. Um, in March, April of 1998, um, our president was Cindy Rickeiser, Vice President Richard Allabach. Glenn Carr was a secretary. Connell Addison was the treasurer. For directors, District 1 was Jan Kaufelt, District 2, Chris Zemney, District 3, Dennis Roloff, District 4, Robert Sorrells, District 5, Gary Moore, District 6, Roger Banks, District 7, Sam Rizzo, District 8, Bill Patrick, and District 9, Stan Freed. So some of those are still familiar names and faces that we see. Other, others of those have passed on, um, but all of those were people that, you know, you and I both grew up with and were very active in this hobby and contributed a lot to it. Um, we were also getting ready for the Portland ARBA convention that was held in Portland, Oregon at 98, the same venue that we used in 2015. And one of the things that was talked about a lot at this was the fact that the schedule was bumped up a day 
Um, so judging began on Sunday. We They use a schedule that year that we use now that is a typical convention schedule, which those of us who have been doing this forever and ever are still having a hard time thinking around. <laughs> but um, judging started Sunday, and then um, the convention ended on Wednesday instead of Thursday. This was also the first year in the youth contests that the team judging and ID was offered. Um, they were also at the time beginning the integration of the rabbit and KV royalty. So this was the first time I did KV ID. I did very poorly at that. Say, how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> Terribly. <laughs> um, you know, I admittedly was not that, I mean, I didn't have to, to be that into it to do the rabbit royalty. It was still separated. There were, it was kind of, you know, discussion of a merger and that was kind of phased in. Um, so poorly, but also I just, <laughs> you know, I wasn't around KVs very often. You know, this was back in the day when we didn't go, you know, three and four states over to shows routinely. Most people stayed, you know, within about four to six hours of the local area, except for, you know, very large regional or national shows. There were hardly any KVs in Kansas. Um, there weren't really many in Missouri at the time, at least at the shows I went to. So I had very little exposure to them. And of course, there wasn't really the Internet. Um, so I, you know, I had my standard. I tried to read and learn. I kind of go peek at them a little bit at convention. Um, but I didn't beat myself up too much. Um Although there was a class of KVs in our team judging event, and I think I probably didn't, didn't do all that well either. <laughs> um, but I did well on the rabbit side, so that was all right. That balanced out. Um, but I think Wait. this may have been one of the last years that they that royalty was separate. I was going to ask you. So did you had to participate in the KV that was required, or uh, or not? And then did that factor into your overall score for royalty? So I believe that um, the KV, because I remember we did it, but I think that was for the team event. Um, okay. There was separate rabbit and KV ID for the individual events and for royalty. Um, and yeah, there was um, KV royalty because it used to be separated out and it would be, you know, so you would do everything that you did for rabbits and, and everything that you do now for rabbits or and or for KVs. There were a lot of kids that did both. So they would take, right, two applications. They would take two tests. They would do two interviews. They would do two ID contests and two judging contests. Um, and a lot of the kids that, that did KV did rabbit too. I think they decided to combine these because there weren't a lot of KV-only kids. And the participation was kind of low. Um, if you look even at the winners list, they... You know, on the rabbit side, they award winners down, you know, to the top five, the winner and four runners up. And the KVs weren't often filled out um, with a full slate of competitors, usually just the Duchess and the Queen categories. Yeah, because I remember in 2001, when I did royalty, KVs were mandatory. And I, like you, was like, I just didn't have a lot of exposure to KVs, but I knew I had to learn them because it was part of the the overall competition it was it was an airba royalty airba king that's what i was competing for in that year and um, i remember doing miserably at them but um i ended up winning mainly mainly because there weren't a lot of com competitors in the king program that year um but in, and now it's of course changed and we've got such a great kv program that they you know they <laughs> you have to know kvs now it's 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 really a world of their own Oh, yeah. Um, there were even separate contests for achievement and management for rabbits and for cavies. Um, wow. So I think, although we kind of complained at the time, especially those of us who, 
you know, didn't have the KV knowledge and to be fair, had a hard time exposing ourselves to that at the time, um, complained about it a little bit. I think in the end, combining those contests did a lot for KVs. You know, kids had to learn about KVs. So they or youth leaders in their area had to learn about KVs or even get KVs. Um, so I think that, that that really kind of boosted the profile of KVs a little bit, which is in the end, fantastic. Absolutely. And now we see I mean, 25 years later, we see a lot of dual licensed judges, both in rabbits and KVs and coming from both sides. There's this new movement out here on the West coast. And I think it's, it's, it's in other parts of the country too, where we see um, KV judges that are now interested in rabbits and they're pursuing register licenses in rabbits. I think it's just fabulous. Uh, Sarah Buchanan and, um, uh, Valerie jump and also Juliet McCammon are working on their, on their rabbit side. And in fact, I sold Juliet a, a, a three stacker of cages recently. She's a KV judge, of course, but, uh, she got some dwarf papillons and she's going to be experimenting, experimenting on the rabbit side. So it's really cool to see how both of our species, though, though they've been under one, you know, organization are, are really melding together and, and supporting each other. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, it really was. Um, and it's interesting, too, in the list of youth contest winners, they actually listed numbers for each contest. So on the ID side, there were 80 senior rabbit competitors. There were 53 senior KV competitors. Um, on the judging side, there were 67 senior rabbit competitors and only 15 <laughs> senior KV competitors, So, which tells you that it's a lot easier to go through ID than judging, at least. <laughs> yeah. um, Totally. And that would include, of course, royalty contestants and the kids who just did those contests as standalone. Back in the day. So what else was going on in 98 in rabbits and cavies? In 98 in rabbits and in cavies, um, there was some talk in um, some of the articles about going online. Mm. <laughs> I, yes, um, there's a lot of talk about um, chat groups. Oh about email and using this new method of communication. So this was a time when we really kind of all started to go online. You know, people started to get an email address and we started to communicate that way. So this was kind of a turning point in the hobby when we kind of started to go electronically. I am uh, sorry that we're talking about this the day before your birthday because it, it probably is even more impactful for you than and painful than it is for me. But to think about those old chat groups, I remember the hairware or hairware or no, the hair net on it was AOL chat group. That was one of the early ones that uh, that we all all were on when we were first getting email addresses. Yeah, that was like the precursor to Facebook groups. Yes, it was. <laughs> all so, right, so just yeah, how things have changed. How things have changed. Well, that was a great flashback in time to 1998 when our guests had. A uh, pretty impactful year for them, both getting in, sort of phasing out, and as we'll find out later on, their their convergence in this episode. Uh, a reminder to all of our listeners that the Rabbit Tree on Facebook will continue to remain as our hub for this podcast, Best in Show. That means that you can find previous uh, links to episodes from last year and this year. We are at episode 36. It's crazy to think about that we're already on episode 36, but links to all of our past episodes are up there on the rabbitry. So make sure you like and follow it on Facebook. And then please share those posts with your friends, those links to our podcasts on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Audible, Spotify, 
or Google, all of those links are on those on those archive forever. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of the new way of of archiving rabbits, and that is in a in an audible a format. So share those links with, with your friends and let's try to get more of our rabbit and KV people hooked on podcasts. And we are a growing trend in rabbits and, and KVs. It's very exciting. And also we really appreciate your five-star reviews, whether it's on Apple or podcast or audible or Google, Google play those five-star reviews and your comments mean the world to us. And if you don't happen to drop them there, you can always email Brian and I, we are at podcast best in show at gmail.com and we love to hear your comments and we do read them on these episodes and we've got loads more to come for you. I can't think of anything more peaceful than standing in the barn after all the chores are done and looking around at the rabbits peacefully eating and thriving and happy bouncing around the cages that rain on the roof sound. It just, it's peaceful and it's wonderful. It so is. Yeah, Bryony. That's a rabbit keeper sign of peace and tranquility clean rows of cages full of happy rabbits. Of course, having well-designed cages makes a huge difference. And I don't think there's a rabbit raiser alive that doesn't yearn to have a rabbitry full of KW advanced design cages, feeders, and nest boxes. The little blue nameplate with a KW bunny logo is how I always can tell those that are really serious about their rabbits. Um, These are the highest quality cages you can find. KW has been around for more than 45 years and is a leading force in our industry when it comes to innovative design and the highest quality of hand craftsmanship. And if you order, by the way, on kwcages.com and use the promo code, the rabbitry, you can get $10 off on your next order of $75 or more. So again, kwcages.com, use the promo code, the rabbitry, and you can save 10 bucks on your next order of over $75. In this podcast, we hear from Carol Green from California and Nate Burbridge from Utah. They are a dynamic duo who started separately showing and raising American Fuzzy Lops, but have joined forces over the last few years and become one of the most competitive show teams in the entire show rabbit and KV industry with many national and convention wins. Carol is a toxicologist and Nate is an attorney. Both have shared their passion and enthusiasm for rabbits with their families and inspired so many others to do the same. Carol and Nate, welcome to the Best in Show podcast. Thank you. We're glad to be here. But we're excited to have both Thanks of you. For having us. No problem. So tell us a little bit about your past. Uh, Nate, how on earth did you come to find rabbits living in Utah? And maybe give us a little history on, on where that went in your life and then in, in terms of where it went with your family. I've been thinking about this a lot today. And I started as a kid um, back in the, I'd say, until late 80s with rabbits, and I ended up just getting some New Zealand rabbits that were in the newspaper. Um, I lived in a, kind of a rural area and where it used to have a bunch of mink farms, and so there were lots of mink cages just laying around. So that's really how I got started. I'd grab the mink cages and convert them over to rabbit cages, and then one day one of the New Zealands got hurt, and then I heard that there was a lady a couple streets over that had rabbits, and she helped me nurse it back to health. And that was really the end of it. Um, she raised Holland Lops. Her name was Ann Shepherd, And, you know, that was really the end. She took me to get rabbit feed and shavings and taught me how to take care of them. And then pretty soon I had a 4-H leader that moved in down the street named Lou Town that really took me under her wing and helped me um, raise rabbits. One day we saw 
an ad in the newspaper for American Fuzzy Lops, and I don't even think they were a real breed yet, uh, accepted by the Arba. And so we drove out to these people's house, found all of them in a hutch outside, and they were completely matted <laughs> and took them all home. I think we took like 20-something rabbits home, clipped them all down, and that was really history. I just knew I was hooked on this amazing, very personable, lovable breed. So... Yeah, but it started with New Zealand's in Mink Cave. Started with New Zealand's, yeah, two white New Zealand's, and I remember bringing them home, and my parents said, "Oh, don't worry, this will last two weeks, and nobody will want to feed these things." And that was, you know, I mean, I think I was like probably eight or nine, literally. I mean, it was a long time ago. So, had you had interest in animals as a kid growing up? Yes, I wanted to do steer, um, but that wasn't really an option where we lived. And so, yeah, no, I, I mean, we always had dogs and I loved to hunt and we raised Labradors, but other than that, no, it's just a love and of animals and the rabbits. So, so, uh, what happened in rabbits you showed in the late eighties, uh, through the nineties and then, and then, uh, what happened between then and now? Um, really good question. So. I didn't have a lot. It, it's an interesting dynamic because we talk about the youth and the youth support that that they receive. And oftentimes it comes from the parents of the youth. But my experience was so different because I really didn't, my family wasn't into it at all. My parents didn't, I mean, they didn't ever come to the shows with me or, you know, I paid for my own rabbit feed and all that kind of stuff. But I had these amazing moms, second moms, as I call them, that really just helped me and guided me and kept me out of trouble. And I remember, you know, in middle school and high school, I would save up my money and, you know, I wanted to go to these national shows and conventions. And so I would, I'd just go down to the travel agency and buy my own plane ticket. And, um, you know, these, so Nicole Brockridi is one of the most influential people in my life. And she would, she had her two daughters that showed and, you know, Deborah Sandoval, same thing. And Devin Guillermo and their sons. And I'd just stay on their hotel room floors. They'd pick me up, and Chris Emney and her two daughters, they'd pick me up um, at the airport, and, and I'd sleep on their hotel floors and go to the shows with them and, you know, pack the rabbits back up and fly home. So really, it was just a really unique, it was a unique experience. It was amazing. It was a safer time in the world. But I really owe so much to those ladies that really guided me and, I mean, helped me to develop just a love and passion for rabbits that is still here today. So. And were you were you successful as a as a youth showing rabbits? Not really, no, uh-uh. <laughs> no. Because as a kid, I mean, they would give me rabbits and I'd breed them and I'd try to like, you know. But I didn't really have any idea what I was doing, you know. So you'd go to Arba convention. I think I'm maybe placed in the top ten once as a youth, but I just it was more of just a love of the animals and knowing like this is something I need to learn, and you know, having just this intense desire to learn and to get better and to, you know, and I loved these people. I loved all of them. They were such amazing mentors to me. So. And a lot of those mentors, those, those rabbit moms are still here today and a part of and your life, all, and of part of, all of our lives. Yeah, really. And I think this, my story is, you know, probably pretty similar to a lot of people for, and I think at, at some point we'll all get together and have a reunion of all of, you know, the <laughs> second moms, the sons of these second moms of people that they've just influenced and helped so much. So no, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is so cool. And back then that was pre-social media. So how, how were you interacting with these adult icons in, in the rabbits that, in the breeds that you were raising and how did you get a hold of them and how did you learn about them? 
you'd write letters. <laughs> it, was like oh the weird, it, was the, it was the craziest. You'd write letters. You'd go to the post office to buy money orders, to buy rabbits. Um, you'd mail them in the mail. And yeah, and literally that's just, and then I remember calling them on the phones and these ladies were so kind to me. I mean, so, so kind to me. And, you know, you think of like a 12 year old kid getting on a plane and flying to some stranger's put house and hotel. And no, it was totally, I mean, they were amazing. And, you know, it was really a cool time. It was just a great, so no, you just write letters and, hmm? How did your parents react to you jumping on a plane and going and staying with these rabbit ladies whom they may have never met before? Um, that's probably a better question for them. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't think they really had, I don't, they didn't really have a choice. Cause they, I mean, I was very headstrong and just do what I, I mean, and they saw that I loved this so much and that, you know, I probably just intuition. They knew that I was safe. These people are great people. So so you took a, a break in rabbits um, during your college years, right? What happened during that time, and how did you become reintroduced to rabbits, and why? Um, so when I graduated from high school, I sold all the rabbits and sold all the cages um, to serve a LDS mission for my church. And I, uh, So I spent two years down in the Dominican Republic and then um, came home, got married to Lovey, and we, once we first got married, we always had a rabbit just sneaked in the apartment and you just put a sheet over it. So it looked like an end table. Um, and then let's say when the kids were, when Stewie was probably two or three is when we really got back into showing and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. And that was Stewie's, then. uh, Stuart, your oldest, uh, of four, correct? Yep. Stewie's the oldest. Yeah. And I have little pictures of him as a one-year-old holding a rabbit. So it's kind of nuts, but, uh-huh. So the your other three kids were raised um, with rabbits as a very real <laughs> part of the family. Absolutely, yeah. From I mean, we on. had our basement unfinished for years, and we always laughed that one of the first pictures you see of the twins in a rabbit with the rabbits, you, we couldn't find them, right? And so then you have that like sheer panic of where's your where are your kids, right, in the house where <laughs> you're running all over. We ran downstairs, and the twins, our middle kids, are twins, and. Natalie and Squid were inside a fuzzy lop cage with the fuzzy lops. It was <laughs> literally so it's just nuts, you know. And then Mia is our youngest, and she's of course been rabbit, rabbit around the rabbits her entire life. So, and what did uh, your wife say uh, when you decided to to really go back to the show tables? Was she like, "What is this rabbit show thing?" Or you know, did you tell your your wife or girlfriend at the time on the first date <laughs> about rabbits, or or did you wait a little longer? She knew. She knew from the very beginning. I mean, they, because the rabbits and the animals were such an important part of my life. Um, one of our very first dates, we drove to a rabbit show up in Pocatello, Idaho, and Chris Zemney was actually the judge. And Chris took her aside. And, you know, I mean, we all know Chris. And Chris said, you know that this is a very important part of his life. I mean, it was like the mom's, like, the mama bear, like, explaining, you know, now just know that this kid is very into it. He really loves this. And if you're going to, if this is, you know, if you're going to be successful with him, this is going to need to be a part of your <laughs> life too. So it's kind of, anyway, so Lovey's just been, she's been amazing the whole time. And anyway, she's just terrific. She loves the bunnies and it's something that we do together every single night. So. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And she's, she's not only been there as, as, as a mom and a rabbit mom, but I've seen her secretary shows. I mean, you got her fully engaged in this thing once it got rolling. Yeah, she loves them. So, and she loves the people and that's the thing. It really is such a family. I mean, it is such, and that's what's kept us going. I mean, the rabbits are, it's fun and it's great to win and, you know, make new things. But 
the same time, it's the people, it's the relationships that last through this. So, yeah, exactly. All right, Carol, your story is a little different. Um, I, we talked previous to the podcast about how both of you sort of had a flip introduction to rabbits. Yeah, rabbits, as we'll find out, uh, came by way of your kids. But Carol, when you grew up, did you grow up? Uh, where did you grow up? Did you grow up on a farm? Yes, I grew up on a, a farm in Salem, Indiana, um, and you know, I was I was in 4-H. Uh, but I have to say, I never um, had an, uh, an animal project when I was in 4-H. And I didn't know that 4-H ever had rabbit projects because my fair didn't have them. So I, I think that's interesting because I know that, that rabbit uh, rabbits for youth and as well as, as adults in Indiana has been really popular over the years, but just wasn't in my particular area. Um, so I always loved animals and uh, loved the farm. But I, you know, I ended up living in Silicon Valley in California, which is a different, different kind of environment. Um, but my kids, we always went back to the farm to visit, visit our relatives every year. So both of, both of my kids loved animals and loved being on the farm. And even in our home, we always had cats or dogs or fish or birds or a variety mm-hmm. of animals. So, um, that's kind of my background where it came from. So I loved animals, but didn't really know anything about rabbits. Um, but then we, I guess I've told the story of how, how I got kind of sucked into this particular hobby <laughs> to almost everybody, which is my daughter, uh, who's the youngest. I have two kids, uh, my son, Adam and, and Kendall, my daughter, she was about nine or 10. And we heard, we heard that there was a 4-H club in our area, so she wanted to join 4-H. So we went to the first meeting, and they were signing up for projects. Um, and they told I don't I don't remember if they had a list of projects or what. But Kendall's beside me, and she says the only project I want to do is rabbits. I said rabbits, yeah, yeah rabbits. That's all I wanted. <laughs> I don't, and I don't even know how she came up with rabbits exactly, but. So we went up to sign up and they said, oh, so sorry, but we don't have a leader for the rabbit project. She just quit. And Kendall looks like she's looking like she's about to burst into tears. And I said, well, I'll be the rabbit project leader. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, how hard could that be? (laughs) All right. How much work could that possibly be? I'll do it. And so that was kind of the start. I mean, then we needed a rabbit. We... Guess we, I guess some of the other kids in the rabbit project had Holland Lops, so we got Holland Lops. I don't remember how we found the original person. I think we chose her to go buy a rabbit from because she lived just like five miles from us. I think that was our criteria for buying, buying a rabbit. Um, and, you know, ended up with a couple rabbits, showed them at the fair. The first judge... Uh, the, fa- the first time, first show she'd ever had where we had a judge what was Randy Shoemaker was the judge. Um, let's see, one of our rabbits was not the sex we thought it was. So it was DQ'd and the other one got last in the class. And the greens are, a you have to know one thing about the green family. We're a little competitive, even though we seem real laid back because Kendall and I walked away from the show and we said, we need better rabbits. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, and and then I said, go ask that kid that got best of breed where they got their rabbits. So smart. That's that is how we started uh, in the rabbit hobby, and it wasn't long before um, Adam, or my older son, my son, um, who was older, got interested in the rabbits too. We they showed Holland Lops for a while. Uh, Holland Lops at that time were were very competitive. Um, and a lot, you know, a hundred youth Holland Lops were being shown and a lot of kids that had been doing it for years, probably working with those ladies that were, had helped Nate so much. Um, and then we saw a fuzzy lop and I mean, the, all of us went, oh, we need to get those. So they got a few, a couple of fuzzy lops to start. They started winning in fuzzy lops, both in open shows and in youth shows. And it just kind of took off from, from there. Um, you know, we discussed having both Hollands and fuzzies at a time and having, you know, our kids show different, different, the two different breeds split. Maybe one, one Adam would have Hollands and Kendall would have fuzzies. And first of all, that kind of would divide up the space that we had available to, to keep them. And remember the thing about how competitive we are, the two kids would have been just completely competitive against one another that wouldn't have gone well. So instead, they just jumped in and to Fuzzy Lops was their breed and they went with that. So that's kind of the beginning of it. And, uh, you know, it led to us going to, well, the first convention we went to was soon after we got started. And it was in Portland, Oregon in 1998. Uh, we went to Fuzzy Lop national shows. We went to, you know, shows all over. The kids did well with their rabbits. They pretty soon they became like the best youth breeders and they held that position for, for several years and really, really enjoyed it, made lots and lots of friends. Um, and it was also a great, um, you know, a great family activity. I know I didn't mention my husband who knows nothing about, about animals, really. <laughs> he didn't grow <laughs> up with animals. He, he likes them now, but it took a while to train him. And so his job was to drive us to the shows and then he would take naps in the car or bring his, once he got to be computer time, laptop, and people would see him in a corner working while we were all showing our rabbits. Yeah, my, my early memories of Jim, I think they're at an Orland, California show, which is, for those who don't know what Orland is, I mean, we call it Borland because it's <laughs> off the I-5 freeway surrounded by just flat farmland. It's not it's not a vacation kind of destination. And I remember going up there, it was one of the first shows I I was living out here in California and Jim was in the corner on his laptop working and, or he was doing it in combination with maybe a raffle table. I think the fuzzy lop nationals were up there one year and he was Probably. Uh, doing both. He was getting, uh, selling raffle tickets for the fuzzy lops uh, fundraiser <laughs> and, and working on his laptop in between uh, raffle tickets, <laughs> but he was very yeah. much a part of the, the green family right. scene. <laughs> and I didn't know that 98 was your first convention. That actually was, was my first convention too. Oh, really? I, I vividly remember you guys in 2001 at the San Diego convention, because I was still living on the East coast, but I flew out to show out and, you know, this is pre-social media. So we're learning about everybody through, you know, rabbit magazines and the fuzzy lop uh, newsletter. And I remember as you described, your kids were on top of the fuzzy lob world in those days, really they could, they could compete in open or youth and they were doing well. And I was like, Oh my God, there's Carol, Adam and Kendall. Like I was just <laughs> like, just, I was like, nowhere near the scope that you're the the touch that you guys had had reached in rabbits and the kids were winning so much and and in those days fuzzy lops were 
you said Holland Lops were a competitive breed in those days. Fuzzy Lops in youth, uh, especially in the Western oh. part of the country, were really competitive, right? Yeah, yeah. We had we had a lot of youth exhibitors at that time in, in California in this area. And that, I mean, that made it great too, because especially Kendall, she had a lot of friends that were showing fuzzies. And I would say Adam had, he had a lot of, I guess, friends that were, that were the adults. That's the thing I was thinking about that's really great about the rabbits and rabbit showing is, you know, the, the youth exhibitors are kind of equivalent in many ways, or at least they felt they were then to the open exhibitors because Adam would talk to them. They'd show rabbits, you know, go back and forth and look at their rabbits and compare them and talk about them. And I feel like both of my kids learned a lot because of those interactions with the adults that were showing. It was as if they really were equal. They felt equal in, in, in the knowledge that they were gaining and kind of comparing. So I thought that was a great part of the, of the hobby. I, I think nothing's changed in that. I always say to people, when you walk into a rabbit show, you're sort of neutralized. It doesn't matter how old you are, where you come from, what kind of job you have, or how much money, or even how good or bad your rabbits are. Everyone sort of goes in there equal, and there's going to be someone there like a, like a mother hen or a <laughs> rabbit show mom to take you under their wings and, and teach you more, right? Right, right. So when you settled on fuzzies uh, after Holland's, how did the wool aspect come into the equation? Were you in, were the kids intimidated? Were you a little worried about the, the workload? I mean, we often say when we're recommending to families on their first breed, we often say like, oh, maybe not a wool breed. I mean, every kid wants an English Angora, right? <laughs> to start with, we, we've all had those moments. Um, but how did how did the wool aspect come into the, those first moments for the kids? Um, you know, I think that's a good question. I, I don't think we thought about it. <laughs> we were innocent. We didn't think about it. Um, we weren't intimidated by it. I mean, and I mean, I helped them some, but largely they did the grooming. Um, you know, we may have been lucky. We may have gotten stock that we started with that had really good quality wool, because I know one of the kind of their first big winner that, that, one shows both open and youth. Um, his coat always looked good. His wool always looked good. It, he didn't even seem to molt. So I know who you're talking about. It's Lassen, right? Lassen. Yeah. Oh yeah, he was he was an icon in his day on the Fuzzy Lop show circuit. <laughs> yeah, he he always looked great. So, um, and you know, I think over time we also learned we didn't start out with a huge number either. So. You know, we learned to pluck them when they're four weeks old or, or cut out the mats at that point when they're pretty young and, and maintain their coat. Um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a problem. And in fact, I even the last show that we had last was last weekend. I had a lot of people coming up and asking me, how do you keep their coats? How, what do you do? I just just take care of them regularly, you know, and some of them were saying, oh, mine has mats all over it. It would be a junior. And I said, you have to get rid of that coat. <laughs> and Ants to grow the adult coat to grow out. So maybe, I don't know. Again, maybe we were lucky. We were definitely naive. So, <laughs> so fast forward, the kids, they showed rabbits um, throughout high school, correct? Yeah, throughout high school and, and even some beyond. I mean, Adam went to, he went to college in Pennsylvania. So um, while, after he was gone then and only home occasionally, you know, Kendall and I, Kendall and I showed I think she didn't. Sh I don't think she showed by herself, 
Um, but then just teamed up and we showed an open for quite a while. And then, you know, she also grew up. <laughs> she does still show with our, uh, Kendall Ann and Nate's son, Stuart, show with our, our team group. So we've kept at least two kids as part of ours, but they're now adults. <laughs> so. But your your daughter now, she may not be there at every show or, you know, as active right. as she was when she was a kid, but rabbits are still part of her life and her classroom because what did she uh, end up uh, per- pursuing as a career? Yeah, she's an... She's an agricultural science uh, teacher uh, in California and an FFA advisor. So she has Californians. Um, you know, she they're not as well loved as Fuzzy Lops were. <laughs> they're there to do a job. A uh, couple weeks, I'm going to go and help her breed them for for the um, for the upcoming fair for the meat pens and single fryers for her FFA students. But yeah, she still thinks, and she thinks it's a it's a great first species for the kids to to work with and show. And Adam, he's living still on the East Coast in, in Pennsylvania. He went on to become a doctor, and now he's got kids of his own and and a family. Yeah. Uh, are rabbits a part of his life? And if not, uh, what does he do when he comes back to visit visit you guys? Does he <laughs> does he still jump into the barn? He he and his kids come into the barn. I I cannot wait until it's the summer for my grandkids to. Uh, come on a plane like i'm sure they'll be more gui- guided than it sounds like nate was but they'll get on <laughs> come to my house and help clean cages and group oh, yeah. up. so yeah my grandson um absolutely loves rabbits and at uh, the story is at christmas this past year they were here visiting and his mom said he's six and she said you know well you could have one rabbit that we can put in the basement as long as you feed and take care of it. And he said, oh, great, Mom. I, but I want two, a boy and a girl. That's how oh, you boy. <laughs> So, Yep, he's definitely a green. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nate, uh, when it comes to your family, you talked about Stuart being your, your oldest and during the reintroduction of rabbits into your family, and then really the rest of your kids kind of growing up in rabbits. What has the ARBA played and show rabbits in the upbringing of your of your family and when it comes to, you know, family time and activities and, and where you go on the weekends? Rabbits have been such a major part of our lives. Um, Stewie, our oldest, loved mini lops. Um, so we just let him jump right into mini lops. Uh, we got good stock for him, like Carol had explained with her, with Adam and Kendall. Um, and he really just took off... Um, you know, we helped him to learn how to call and to pick out or breed for certain characteristics. But he had a great shell string. Um, you know, when he was growing up, um, had his own little barn. He he fed and cleaned them, and he did great. I remember at one point the teacher called because the, when I got my judge's license, it was just natural. He would jump in the car with me on Fridays, and we would drive all over or go over everywhere to the different shows. And in Utah – we don't have a lot of shows locally, so you do have to travel. You have to drive long ways. And I remember the teacher had said at one point, this kid had so many missing assignments, like, all right, no more rabbit shows till this kid catches all of, up with all of his assignments. So um, anyway, he he did great with the mini lops. And, and he still, I mean, he came to, he he's in college in Virginia, and he drove over to the Kentucky convention just this past <laughs> October. And he was so great in helping Carol and I get him groomed and, 
I mean, and he goes through and picks out his winners who he thinks. And like Carol said, um, Stewie and Kendall still show with us on the show team. And, you know, they do try to come to convention when they can and, and help us. And it's just been a great camaraderie. Um, the twins have always, I mean, all of our kids, the thing with the rabbits is it's taught them to work really hard and to have, to set goals, to have high expectations of yourself, but then to know that you have to put in the time and the effort to make it work. Um, from very early, they were very good at helping clean and feed the rabbits. And, um, and it's just, it's really blossomed. Um, we've kind of employed all the neighbor kids. It seems like all my kids friends to clean uh, the bunnies are clean twice a week. And it's just kind of the thing. They just know on Wednesdays and Saturdays, they have to come and, and work hard and, and we have a great time doing it. Uh, squid and Mia have their own mini satins and have developed their own little show string of you know, little tiny shinies. And um, they've done really well with them. They've won, they won convention, I guess not last, I guess 2019. They won Best of Breed at, at Arba Convention, and just they were so happy because they put in so much work, and and it really is just such a rewarding, amazing hobby to do as a family, and that everybody can do their own thing, but yet they come together and work really hard and set goals, and and you can achieve them, and that and yeah, and they've learned to. Um, one of the coolest things as, as I thought about this was the relationships that we've developed with people from around the world. I mean, Alan, Kendall, Carol, Jim, Adam, I mean, all these people are, um, they really are. It's just an extension of the family and they've learned, um, you know, different ways of doing things are, are, it's all great. And so it's just been a neat, been a wonderful experience as I've looked back at with my kids and look forward with my kids to, you know, more years of showing. So, well, I'm I'm looking at um, I'm not a parent, but I imagine Carol had it sort of easy when both of her kids decided that they were going to show Fuzzy Lops together, and you know she said, well, it created less competition between the kids, uh, being you know one force and one breed. But in your case, Nate Stewart wanted to raise Mini Lops, and then later on, your younger kids wanted to raise Mini Satins. What advice would you give to parents who have kids that? want to take on a second or a third breed and, and what goes into that decision to, to take on, you know, more rabbits and then maybe less focus on the breeds that are, that are already in the barn. So I would say, let them go for it. Absolutely. Um, they started, so we had mini lops, we had uh, Polish at one point that we the squid had great ones from Kathy Groves. And then he was able to move those on to, you know, a neighbor kid and get them going. Um, Start small, though. I mean, the the tendency when you get rabbits, especially when you have kids, is that you want to say, like, okay, you know, child A is going to have this one, child B is going to have this one, child C. And you really can't do that. You just have to let it be natural and kind of let them get to the shows, work behind. And the, the best thing would be get them exposure behind the table to not be intimidated, like Carol was saying, to talk to adults um, and find the breed that works for them. And then say like, all right, sometimes, you know, you're, we're, we all compete and, you know, my kids oftentimes will show in the open and you're not always going to win. And that's been a really important thing with rabbits is knowing that it really is, you know, your rabbit's not going to look amazing all the time, right? Um, except for Lassen, right? I, I <laughs> That one apparently, he looks great all the time, but. He um, kind of did. <laughs> he was a timeless so that's classic. That's been fun is. 
it's okay to compete and it's okay to, you know, to help each other to achieve their goals too. So anyway, but start small, focus on certain varieties that you're going to work with um, that you, that can be manageable and then go with it and let them go for it. And it's been really cool to see. And Carol, you and Nate are from different parts of not only the country, but really the, the show rabbit industry. We're in Utah. Nate said, you know, there aren't a show, a lot of show opportunities. So it means driving a long way here in California, Northern California, where you live. I mean, pre pandemic and even it's picking up again, but there are show opportunities every weekend. So when it came to deciding which shows to go to and how many to attend, uh, what went into that for your family and what would you recommend to other families who, who are given a lot of opportunities to show, you know, is there too much? Is there too little? Um, I have to think about it. I I know that we went to at least one show a month when they when they got into it more heavily. I mean, they didn't start out that way, obviously. Um, I remember the first show they went to. I think we had two or three, probably Holland Lops then, and you know we thought, oh, this is very interesting. And then we looked around and said, huh, you know, it takes as much gas and time to get to the show when you bring 10 rabbits as when you bring two. And so, you know, they kind of got, got into it that way, but, but they didn't always show in youth and they didn't always show in open, but from one to two shows a month, I mean, kids have got other activities, obviously they're in sports and they're in other things on the weekends. And sometimes they just want to goof off. So (laughs) we, we allowed that and just did what felt right to, to the family basically. And when the kids showed and open, that may be something that's a little confusing to some of our listeners who might be new to this. When Mm -hmm. we talk about open shows and youth shows, some shows don't have a youth aspect. In some parts of the country, they're open only. Um, What would you recommend or or how how did your kids take having the opportunity to show and open maybe when it was the only opportunity? Would you still suggest or recommend to families that those are still good opportunities to take your rabbits, even when they can't show in a youth competition, but they've got to show against some of the veterans who are older? Like, Oh, oh yeah, I definitely recommend it. And what, at the time they were showing, there weren't, they definitely were only, there were a lot of only open shows. I mean, many of them were. So uh, that's kind of why, you know, we went to those because they did want to go to shows that were not too terribly far away and also, you know, had a good number of rabbits that would come. Um, so they frequently showed an open and it gave them a lot of comp- a lot of good competition as well as, like I said, it gives you the opportunity, it gives the kids the opportunity to interact on a more or less equal basis with the adults. And, you know, I, I hear kids worry about not being able to compete, but many of them can for sure with the adults and and you get respect from the adults you get to talk to them you learn what they think and and i think it encourages more youth to actually show yeah i totally agree how do you feel about that nate i absolutely agree with that the one thing that i would say is they've got to be you got to have a very strict calendar. My wife is a lovely, oh, amazing yeah. at managing the calendar, right? <laughs> um, because each of our kids, I mean, Stewie swam competitively all through, you know, high school and swims in college. Um, so there was always, you were always balancing um, rabbits with the other activities. Squid plays basketball and the girls dance. And the point is you're not going to make every rabbit show. But if you're dragging your kids to the rabbit show, if it becomes a chore, don't do it, 
right? If if they don't love it, it you, more rabbit shows is not going to make them love it, right? And recognize that at different times in their lives, they will like it more than at other times, right? Um, I mean, one of our daughters loves to play with the babies and will help at the shows, but she's not really, I mean, Natalie's not super into it. She never wanted to have her own string of rabbits and that's totally fine. Right. And rabbits can look different for, and be different for every different family and different members of the family. I mean, sometimes, you know, you talk about, it's not just showing, right. It's breeding. It's um, letting them play with the rabbits. It's grooming the rabbits. It's like, working on a new color. It's, I mean, there's so many different ways to find success in our hobby and that's, what's cool about doing it. Um, families can look different. I mean, blended families, same sex, uh, couple families. I mean, that's, what's so amazing about the rabbits is it, everybody has may have different lifestyles and perspectives, but they all come together and for the same purpose and the same goal. And that's rabbits. Right. And, but even that not everybody's going to win best of breed every weekend. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's been cool is it, it has taught them you're not going to win all the time. And that's important. That's a huge lesson in life to learn is, you know, you, know, you keep going, you keep working. So That's great advice. And I, I know I've seen some photos, Nate, from your household um, on cleaning day, and you, you briefly touched on it earlier. How has your family taken some of the non-fun stuff about rabbits, like cleaning and grooming? How do you, how do you take that and make it fun so that, that the kids don't burn out or get discouraged um, and want to keep going because we all know going to shows is fun, but there's a whole other aspect, you know, the Monday through Friday, that's not so fun. So what, what have you incorporated with your family to make some of that non-fun stuff? Controversial, but we don't, if they're tired and cranky and irritable and it's freezing cold outside, it's fine. I'll do it that week. Seriously. And that's, and you've got to read the situation, right? And the point is, if it becomes such an onerous, horrible chore, they're going to burn out fast, guys. Yeah. And so what we've always tried to do is, I mean, they bring their friends over, we pay their friends, we pay them um, for to help clean the Carol and Nate rabbits. Like, you know, so I do make it, I mean, they have to clean their own. I understand that. But for dad's rabbits and... um yeah, I mean, uh, we pay them because it, it is a, I mean, it's a pain in the butt and fuzzy lops are a ton of work. You have vacuum up cages and power wash them and burn them and it's a ton of work. But yeah, I mean, we just have lots of kids here all the time and love make sweet rolls. And I don't know. I mean, it just, we always start with a big breakfast on Saturday mornings with the neighbor kids and they come here and everybody kind of the lesson is always at our house. You never leave hungry and you need to know that you're loved that here, <laughs> um, and that, that's how we've just always done it with the rabbits is know that you're loved and you know, this is a good, safe place. So, so do you, do you think that maybe having your own rabbits as well, aside from the kids that that allowed you the opportunity to give them the chance maybe to earn some extra money by helping clean, clean dad's cages? Would you maybe recommend to families and rabbits, like maybe the adults should have some too, so that you could use that as a, as a, as a. Yeah, Absolutely. And it doesn't have to, I mean, we have 60 fuzzy lop um, cages. It doesn't have to be that big, right? But no, I mean, my biggest thing is as a youth, it would always bug me when the adults would show under the youth, you know, names. And so I didn't ever want to do that with my own kids. I mean, Stewie had fuzzy lops too. And I just said, well, you have to show me open with, with dad and with Carol and Kendall, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's been just a great, great opportunity. So. 
And for Carol, once Adam moved on to college and you were raising rabbits or, or Kendall was basically at home doing most of the rabbit stuff, as you mentioned earlier, the two of you decided to, to gang up as a duo and show an open, right? Right. And how was that? Was that, uh, I mean, because that, that limits, that takes out the youth show equation right. when, when mom gets involved and puts her name on them too. Um, how did that go? And, and how would you uh, talk about that to others that, that might be in the same? Um, you know, I, I went well for us. I think, of course, you know, of course you have a, a teenager then and things are not always smooth with the teenager. <laughs> so as the child, but, but no, we, we, um, we did show together, worked well. Eventually she was, of course, she was in college. And, you know, I don't remember the exact time when she no longer showed. I believe she showed with me all through um, all through uh, college and, and had interest. In fact, while she was in college, she started missing rabbits because she didn't have any with her. She ended up, um, she was has always been interested in red animals. So, and so she wanted Triantis. So we had, I I remember that Trianta phase. Yes. Uh (laughs) For a while. And she would do the breeding and because she was in San Luis Obispo at Cal Poly, she would do the breeding, have the babies and, you know, the breeding stock there. And then as they grew up and were ready to show, I would have them because I was going to shows with fuzzies and at that time. So with the fuzzies and the triantas. So, you know, she still loved the animals and loved the, loved the rabbits and just, just kind of managed it a little bit differently. Um, you know, you're talking about the chores. Uh, I, I agree that kids didn't always want to do it. So I did it some, some we shared at times. I mean, when we did all do it together, it was kind of fun in a way. As long as so mo- most fun was when it was done, but never <laughs> it was it was a, a family activity that we could do. And but- uh, Nate brought up earlier, you know, <laughs> it, it sometimes is the elephant in the room when when it's clear that the the youth are showing the rabbits, but really it's mom or dad that are behind the scenes, right. and they're the ones that are that are interested in it. Would you would you suggest then maybe for those if they don't want to have their own rabbits these, these parents and the kids are kind of not interested maybe then to collaborate and then move into the open and then maybe that would be a good transition to get the the parents name on them without ruffling feathers of the other youth exhibitors and, and their parents. I that is an interesting that is an interesting and a good idea and it, I really wasn't thinking about it as we were doing it other than you know Kendall and Adam weren't at home, so they couldn't be showing the rabbits and I was doing all the work, but having, you know, doing it with my daughter was a a good, a good way to enjoy it. And when the shows were close to her, she would join me also. So it's always going to be a transition through. I mean, of course, there's often couples that um, end up showing together, but my husband doesn't really have (laughs) And showing the rabbits. So, although I will say, right now he's probably feeding them, so he he gets some points too. Oh, he's a hero if he's doing that. Heck yeah! <laughs> and um, we talk about you know the rabbits as the, in the show table side of the competitive side, but there are other things that kids can enjoy and be successful at without even having maybe the best rabbits to show in terms of quality. I mean, my first rabbit was disqualified and I found showmanship to be a way to be successful without having the best rabbits. Nate, for your kids, did they get involved in some of the youth competitions um, at maybe the fairs or at the ARBA uh, convention level? Um, they didn't. And it, and it, and that's, you brought a really good point up is 
there's so many different opportunities for kids. I mean, there's rabbit royalty. There's, I mean, at the show I was at last weekend in Washington, there were, you know, they were doing quizzes and rabbit testing. And I mean, I was way into showmanship as a kid. I mean, my rabbits were terrible. So that was the thing that I did. Right. And I loved it. And I loved memorizing and, and explaining, you know, about the rabbits. My kids really weren't into that. And so I didn't, I recognized that early on and I didn't push them into that. Um, and maybe we should have, but it, but for us, that, that wasn't really a, I, I didn't want it to be a, a, you know, this memorizing school type thing with them. And so for them, they, we didn't ever do, you know, the showmanship or the royalty type stuff. They just raised the rabbits and, and they've, you know, anyway, it's been interesting. Um, at the West coast, the last West coast classic, my youngest Mia was behind the table and we were, she was riding for me in one of the breeds. And she said, why are these, you know, why do these people bring these rabbits? They're molting and this is a fur breed. <laughs> and it was just hilarious because then, you know, Randy went and bought her a registrar book and she was studying for the test. Anyway, it's just been interesting at different times that anyway, just their love. I remember that show because we went to dinner, I believe after, after mm-hmm. that happened. And Mia was at the, at the dinner table, you know, telling us all about the studying for the registrar test. And mm-hmm. and at that moment, that was that, that's where she was going with it. But you've said it a few times, maybe different words, but you never pushed your kids in the direction, in any certain direction. You kind of let, let the journey become their own, right? It absolutely is the key because if it's miserable and if you're, dragging your kids up to the table, they're going to hate this. And this is going to last two seconds. Um, if it's a thing that, I mean, some of my fondest memories with my kids are driving to rabbit shows and talking, um, and just the normal distance that happens during the week between parents and kids. Um, and it, it's not intentional, but they're busy and you're busy. And some of my, you know, just amazing moments in rabbits, are those still moments when you're driving in the car and you're able to talk and talk about things that matter. And anyway, and it really, that, that has been one of the biggest values of the rabbits in our family is those moments of being able to talk and share. And maybe you're not even talking about the rabbits, but you're talking about things at school and, you know, so-and-so that they have a crush on. And it's just been really cool. And you can, you don't have to be, you know, that doesn't have to be driving to a rabbit show can be in those quiet moments just out in the barn feeding the rabbits and anyway yeah it's like we, a lot of us don't get time to sit down with our families and have dinner every night like maybe we were raised but being in a car and going to a show and having those moments together maybe in the barn cleaning it, it gets us together on a different different level right absolutely exactly and uh for carol did you uh, did your kids do youth competitions like showmanship or convention ARBA youth activities like king or queen contest? They did, um, but not not very much. Um, you know, I encourage them to at least try it once or twice. Um, and I think it's interesting now. Kendall never even liked doing showmanship, and yet her FFA, FFA students they're doing rabbit projects. She makes them do showmanship and practices with them and so forth. So um, it is a good opportunity, but it wasn't something they did a lot of. But I definitely have to agree with Nate of, of the value of the time of parents spending with their kids, whether it's driving to a show or just feeding or whatever. That That is something that 
everybody needs to do and it's hard to do in our normal rush, rush, rush lives. And both of you had kids that were active in school. They, they were great students. And for Nate, those kids are still in school. You brought up earlier about uh, Stuart kind of getting uh, scolded from his teacher about being gone so much and having late assignments. Uh, what are, Sorry, are you there? You cut out for a second. Do that. And what are some of the tactics you've used to kind of make that a smoother transition so that kids can allow can be allowed to show rabbits when it's really not part of their their scholastic activity? Um it's been interesting because the teachers have been great. They've always just been great when you explain to them uh, you know, this is what we do and um, as a family and other activities that we do as a family, teachers have been awesome. I mean, especially when you talk, I mean, you have like a built-in third grade science fair project. We've done every single science fair that you could possibly do on breeding rabbits, on color selection, on, you know, crown placement development. And I mean, the kids always do amazing with that kind of stuff. And so, I don't know. I mean, the teachers have always been terrific in working with us. So, and they're actually, they've always been fascinated and, you know, I mean, even at the photography class, Natalie takes the rabbits into for, um, <laughs> for the photography. And anyway, it's, it's kind of an interesting attention getting, um, little, you know, tidbit about you. So. Yeah. And it's, and it's a way to incorporate rabbits in, you know, being creative in terms of how you incorporate them with maybe what the kids are actually doing in school, because it's probably not rabbits, but, you know, even photography using them as a, as a, what is it like a, a model for whatever yeah, they're photographing. Yeah, it's so perfect. interesting. That's a great idea. Yeah. And what about you, Carol? Did, did, I mean, you grew up, your kids grew up in the Silicon Valley where ag is not a daily uh, for probably their peers. How was it for you as a parent to talk to teachers about getting time off for the kids to go to uh, shows out of town or convention? We never had any problems like that. I mean, the, and, and maybe not as much as Nate and his family, but my, you know, my kids could use rabbits in various projects that they had or bring them in to show them to classes and so forth. It's, it's always been good. And, um, you know, definitely in high school, at least they, um, Kendall's, um, school, actually, she had a teacher that was starting a garden and I guess he now has goats at the school. And so even though we are in the Silicon Valley, there are many of the teachers that kind of value exposing the kids to other aspects of life than what they see daily. Well, and maybe elaborate on that um, as we see an FFA um, and just our society is changing. So an FFA has been pretty um, inventive in incorporating rabbits because we are shifting to more of a suburban urban environment. Um, maybe for you, could you elaborate on why rabbits make sense for kids that want to be involved in agriculture that otherwise couldn't have a steer or a lamb? Right. Well, I mean, it it is it is a great option because there's many of the same things that you can learn not they don't cost as much to to feed they don't cost as much to buy as a steer i mean that's and the, and the competition of course in showing steers and some of the large animals is kind of frightening considering the amount of money that they'll pay for them and and do so the rabbits is a much more economical more available to other people and takes kids that may not have any agricultural exposure to kind of understand that that this is the same process. You have to raise them and feed them. You have to keep them clean, and you have 
you may handle them, you will be breeding them, and so on. You've got the basic pieces of agriculture there. Of course, they're rabbits, and many people see that more as a pet. But if you can understand that we have so many different rabbit breeds with so many different characteristics, and some of them are producing wool, that's still a product, that's still an agricultural activity, um, and so on. So, yeah, I, I it's a it's a great at least introduction. And as I said, my daughter sees it as an introductory species for for the kids in FFA to do. I know when I was in 4-H, I really wanted to show a steer, raise a steer. And I think back about it. My dad said, first of all, he said, no way, girls don't do that. Well, so, hmm. <laughs> but, but um, I'm kind of small to handle a steer also. So <laughs> maybe it was a good idea. And uh, Nate, you know, Carol just mentioned some of those life lessons that can be learned in rabbits. What would you, uh, what would you elaborate on with some of those life lessons that you've seen your kids uh, adopt, and and you as as a lifer, you know, as a as a kid and now an adult? What are some life lessons that can be learned from from showing and breeding rabbits? Most important, um, well, one of the most important lessons that I ever learned as a kid. Is through rabbits, and I've talked to lots of people about this. Rabbits made me learn how to talk to and associate with adults, right? Um, and to not be intimidated and to, you know, take a challenge on. Um, and that has been what I mean, and, and it's helped me in, you know, in education, in my career, is how to be able to talk and, and, and speak to others. Um, as a kid, with my own kids, it, it's really opened their eyes to um, the amazing, wonderful, different people that are may have different, um, you know, religion, religious backgrounds or affiliations or none. Or um, it's just taught them that there's so many wonderful, amazing, different people in the world. And it's okay to to choose your own path. Um, and that's really what, what rabbits have, have taught us. Um, my kids have been welcomed in by so many rabbit breeders. I mean, I think of the many satin people and I mean, Leanne McKinney and Todd Narragon and Roger Hassenflug and Susie Dapper. And I mean, these people are just amazing icons in the breed and my kids would go to a show and they'd be the first off the table. And, but it taught them to not get discouraged and, you know, and then go talk to these adults and say, here are some traits that I need to work on. Do you have stock that might help? That's the kind of thing that it's taught my kids. Um, and of course, I mean, when you have a kid that comes and approaches you with those types of, you know, that level of, of um, inquiry, I mean, of course, adults help. We all love to help kids. And so it really, my kids have been helped by so many amazing people. I mean, that, yeah, it's just been an amazing, wonderful experience. Carol, do you have any life lessons to to add to that that you've seen in your own kids and then watching other kids um, at rabbit shows? Now that your kids are adults, you're an active ARBA judge and you see a lot of kids. Um, what right. other life lessons would you elaborate? Um, I mean, I, I certainly agree with the ones that that Nate's mentioning. And I, and I mentioned also that just it's so good to see adults and kids kind of operating on a same level. And then the youth learn a lot from that. Um, you know, the, the youth, I mean, the other thing that maybe just seems pretty sappy is just the, 
the love and consideration that the that the youth or the kids are learning from having an animal, being responsible for it. Sometimes it dies. <laughs> sometimes you get you get the babies that you wanted from your breedings, and sometimes you get none. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of the symbolism for all of life, I think, and the things that happen in learning to handle and raise and and manage a, a herd of animals or a, or a breed like rabbits. So, um, I think those are the main main things that I would say that are so important that we've gotten from the hobby. In addition to just how fun it is to be with your family um, and do something that you all can enjoy. I never thought about that when I was kind of penning out this podcast was the the cycle of life aspect and and learning about death right. because it is part of this. We, you know, rabbits don't live forever. And even the ones that are meant to live a little longer sometimes don't. And then that's something that that we as kids or maybe you as parents have to deal with and teach your kids at the same time. So that's that's pretty incredible. I think it's not sappy at all. They also get to learn how babies are made. Really. <laughs> so. That yeah, that might uh, take away some of the awkward conversation that has to come later in life when the kids already learn about <laughs> what a buck and doe can do. <laughs> All right, well, I've kept you both uh, long enough tonight. I want to thank you both uh, for being here, but I'm going to end with one more question for each of you, and we'll start with Nate. And it's a question that we ask. Um, all of our podcast uh, guests. And if you could describe your perfect rabbit or KV show, what would it look like, Nate? It would be full of friends and lots and lots of fuzzy lops with different breeders and, and, you know, but lots of friends. And how about you, Carol? Well, basically the same thing, but it's in my backyard <laughs> so we have that show at our house and I love that show every single time, no matter how much work it was to get the house clean and the yard straightened up and the rabbits out. Yeah. I finally got to experience the backyard Carol Green show this summer and it was as great as everyone has described it for the last 20 years. And I finally made it myself. It was a blast. And I, maybe I should say when it started since based on the topic that we have. So my son, Adam, was graduating from high school and his friends were having graduation parties. And I asked him what he wanted for, did he want a party? And he said, no, I want a rabbit show at our house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Spoken like a true rabbit kid. <laughs> and that, you know, maybe that's an idea for, for um, listeners, parents that want to put on show or go to shows maybe that, where they don't have the opportunity to go. And we talk about this on the podcast a lot. Some of those smaller, more intimate shows are the best shows because it allows more time for learning and, and interaction without the hustle and bustle of, you know, three shows and multiple breeds and gosh, there's so much going on. Um, have you ever held um, maybe a field day at your house that wasn't a rabbit show per se? Maybe you would recommend that to other parents that, that want to increase interest without all the hustle and bustle? Yeah, that's a good idea, too. I think we have had a 4-H kind of field day at our house once or twice um, about rabbits. But, um, but yeah, I think that's a great thing to do. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be a big location or all that fancy, but it's a good to have a group of students come by and show them and talk to them about what you're doing. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right, Carol and Nate, thank you so much for being a part of this uh, podcast this week and sharing your time, not only as rabbit breeders and judges, but also as parents and and um, 
children of rabbits is in, in Nate's situation. He's just like me, grew up doing this and, and stuck around for, the, for, for life. So thank you for joining us, uh, both of you. And we look forward to seeing you at the upcoming shows. Thank you. Alan, that was a great interview with Nate and Carol. It's always fun to hear about how rabbits impact people's lives um, out, just outside of the showroom. And I, I really enjoyed that one. I'm so, so glad for... you did because we both know Nate and Carol very well. You you judge out here a lot, and as active judges, both uh, Nate and Carol judge you know quite often around the country. And they're some of the most enthusiastic, authentic, and positive forces in our industry. So it was a pleasure to have them on. And you know, we talk about podcast episodes between the two of us when we're getting together and talking about okay, what are we going to do next, and who are we going to interview, and we could use them for so many different topics. And you know, the topic of being a, a pair and and kind of collaborating in a group project. I think that should be a great episode for an upcoming podcast. And they, again, would have been a great pairing for that and a great match for that. So yeah, it was fun. I love them. And uh, thank you both, Carol and Nate, for joining us on this podcast. Yes. And I love that idea. We're starting to see now more partnerships in the rabbit community, even partnerships from people that don't live, you know, in the same town or the same state, which is their case as well. Um, you know, again, like we talked about a little bit in the intro, online communication has really helped us to fulfill that. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Definitely. So for our education portion, going back to an article in 1998 that's still very relevant and timely, Dr. Chris Hayhow was the author of the doctor's office column in the Domestic Rabbits at the time. And his article was about coccidiosis, something that is familiar to most of us, but still something that, you know, as rabbit breeders, we need to be cognizant of. And he gives kind of an overview of the disease itself. There are two kinds of coccidiosis that rabbits can have. The first is hepatic, which means that the coccy are in the rabbit's liver and cause lesions in the liver. Um, he says most of them or many of them show no clinical signs. However, you can see diarrhea or constipation, as well as weight loss, pot belly, um, poor coat of fur, and other signs of just kind of overall ill health. The other kind of coccyx is intestinal, which, of course, these um, occur and live in the rabbit's intestines and cause a lot of the same symptoms. Coccyx are a protozoan parasite and are something that are present in the environment in a lot of animals. There's only a few species that impact rabbits. One of the things I think is interesting is that a lot of times when we see rabbits like this that are a little rough in flesh, the coat just doesn't have that life and luster to it, people assume that worms are the culprit. You know, and I think you know, they think about kind of like their pet dog, and you definitely see that. You know, if you see a dog that's kind of rough and mangy looking, you know, you're feeding it and it's not gaining weight, then worms are, are a likely suspect, um, at least a good place to start. And, you know, worming your dogs on, routinely is something that's good to do. But with rabbits, most rabbits you see that have pinworm infestations, they can be in beautiful condition. Um, so I think that, that it's interesting that rabbit breeders kind of tend to focus on worming when really coccyx is one of those things that it's essential to treat your herd routinely for. Um, Dr. Hayhow wrote again another article in the July-August 2020 issue of the Domestic Rabbits where he gives some parasite treatment. And even if you weren't a member of the ARBA then... This issue and this article are available on your ARBA app, as are several back issues of domestic rabbits. So this is really great reference material. Um, people often talk about, you know, how to treat, what to treat, 
what to use. There are some drugs that we use for rabbits that have become a little bit more difficult to obtain due to the pandemic. Um, but he gives some recommendations and dosages here for both sulfoquinoxalin, um, sulfa drugs have kind of been the gold standard for treating coxie in rabbits for many, many, many years. And then talks about amprolium, which is sold in the brand named Corid, and gives the dosage for that as well. Um, he also talks a little bit about something that, you know, has been discussed recently, which is toltrazoril or some of these coccidia side treatments, because there's a difference between a coccidia stat, which reduces the number of coccidia in the rabbit, and a coccidia side, which kills them all. And he actually prefers the coccidia stats because they reduce the number of coccidia and kind of give the rabbit's um, immune system a chance to build that immunity to that parasite, whereas the coccidia side doesn't necessarily provide that opportunity. Um, but again, these are protozoan parasites. They are easily ingested by the rabbit. They're carried in feces. Um, another way to prevent infestation with this is to clean the bottoms of your cages routinely, you know, brush off feces, uh, make sure that these are kept clean. They can be killed by ammonia-carrying disinfectants, not necessarily um, you know, iodine or bleach, but ammonia will kill them. And uh, if you don't necessarily want to treat your animals, you can absolutely take a fecal sample to the vet and also have those analyzed. This is another thing that he recommends in the 1998 article. Um, if you suspect that a rabbit might have coccidiosis, which is um, the presentation of an infestation of coccidia. So is this something that you treat for routinely, Alan? It's a, I love this topic because it's as Dr. Hayhow has, you know, penned out in an article in 98 and then he brought it back in 2020. It's an evolving issue. And that's because coccidiosis is becoming resistant to some of the drugs over time that we've always relied on. And, I don't, I, previous to maybe the last year or two, I didn't pay too much attention to it in rabbits, but I did in my goat herd. And I fed for a number of years a coccidiostat in my pellet for the goats. And okay, I'm, I'm diverging, I know, on goats and stuff, but I'm going to bring it back to rabbits, everybody. Um, for years, I fed this coccidiostat, which basically has um, a very, very minute, very trace level of coccidiostat medicated into the feed and I fed it to my kids. Those are baby goats. And for years it worked and the goats were great and the kids were healthy. Meanwhile, I raised them on the same pasture, the same very small lot of land year after year and it worked. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. And I was getting kids with diarrhea. I was getting kids that weren't growing, kids that were run down. I'm like, what's going on? They're eating. They're fine. Their parents are fine. What the heck's going on? Sent fecals as Dr. Hale recommended off to the lab they came back with very high levels of coccidiosis. What was happening was that my own herd was becoming resistant to the coccidiostat in the, the feed, the medicated feed itself. Did some more research, talked to pathologists at UC Davis. Turns out that coccidiosis is becoming resistant to drugs. And that's why we see new drugs like, as you mentioned, Totrazerol. Marquee is another one, which is very similar um, in its design. That's why these new drugs have come on the market. And that's why some of the drugs that we relied on in the past aren't working as well because the coccidiosis itself has become pretty resistant to the drugs that we historically have fallen back on. So yes, it's very important. And I think it's really, as you underscored, underrated in rabbits. And what I've noticed in both in rabbits and in goats 
if a rabbit rebounds from having coccidiosis, that means it lives, right? It never quite looks the same. And it always happens in young rabbits. They just, okay, if they live, great. But normally if they get it full blown, they just never rebound, which means that they've got kind of a bloated belly for their life. They're rough. Their fur never looks as good. So keeping on top of that from the get-go is really, really crucial. And I, I, I loved what you said. And, and Dr. Hale has in his, you know, in basically 20 years of difference in research and, and what's going on really penned it out nicely that this thing is moved on. It's exacerbated. It's, it's mutated. It's resistant. And we've got to look to new drugs to, to treat it because once you get it, if you survive, you never quite feel the same. And, and that too then lingers down into, okay, maybe you're not a show rabbit, but your reproductive capability as a breeding rabbit, it's, just not the same. So great article, great topic. I think we should bring it back in a podcast actually dedicated entirely to it because it's one we don't talk about very much. And as Dr. Hayhow talked about in his podcast with you previously, um, we talk about pinworms, but in reality, rabbits don't get a lot of those internal parasites that we treat for with things like Safeguard um, and Fembendazole drugs. In reality, it's probably this coccidiosis. So uh, I'll get off my tangent. Great article. Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. Um, And actually, the article from 1998 recommends um, kind of maybe rotating between these drugs in your herd so as not to create resistance in your herd. And he says, always remember with any therapeutic agent, coccidia may become resistant with time. It was very interesting. You know, I love I still love attending like 4-H seminars and things because Maybe it's a topic that I know about. It's not new to me, but you hear someone else's perspective on it. And that's why I love about like judges conference and just talking about things with, you know, fellow judges. But I remember something that stuck with me from a youth clinic that I attended a few years ago that was before a youth show I was judging. And the leaders were talking about how there tends to be like kind of a three to five year arc in people getting into and out of rabbits. And they mentioned that a lot of people don't treat for coxie Hmm. and within about three years, if you don't, you're often going to see problems because you're taking those rabbits out and about. They're exposed to those oocysts on the tables. And if this isn't something that you're doing routinely, your herd kind of tends to lose condition and then people maybe get out. And I mean, I don't know exactly how, you know, that we haven't done any, you know, research on this or anything, but I think it's really interesting um, because you do notice this. I mean, I tend to treat routinely every spring, kind of before I get started breeding, and I have rotated between Corid and Sulfa drugs. Um, I've also used Marquis, so I kind of just keep things going um, to where I'm not using something, you know, every year to where they get resistant in my herd. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of the more underrated um, management practices in the rabbit hobby. And again, just, you know, making sure taking a wire brush or your magic scraper or whatever, and getting those feces off of the cage floor. So the rabbit's not reinfecting itself. I love that part. Keeping your clay, your, your cage floor clean, you know, and that, that goes for any kind of disease that might be going on in your rabbit train, particularly vent disease. You know, if you keep your cage floor clean, you're, going to spread less of the same bacteria or whatever you're trying to get rid of out of the equation. So, you know, keeping a clean rabbitry is number one. Dr. Hayo talked about in his podcast with you as well previously. Uh, Gosh, great topic. (laughs) I love it because uh, we don't talk about coccidiosis enough. And 
the reasons for keeping clean cages and rotating drugs and all this kind of stuff. And there's so many good new stuff out there that, uh, that aren't necessarily pertain to rabbits because not much is, let's face it. Um, but does work quite well in rabbits. And that toltrazrol is actually, a, um, a, a, a drug that's been developed. I believe it was in Australia and it was around horse race or, or race or ho- horses in horse racing. So again, well, the, the GI tract in a rabbit is very similar to that of a horse. So it makes sense that these drugs work quite well in both species. All right. Yes, it does. So again, if you want to read that dosage (laughs) um, and you do not have access to that DR, you can always go back into the ARBA app and you can find the entire um, um, contents of the July, August, 2020 domestic rabbits. It's the one with the Dutch on the cover. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> all right, guys, don't forget, follow the rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to be our hub each and every week for all of our previous and current and upcoming episodes of the po- uh, Best in Show podcast. We'd love to hear your comments, whether it's on Apple, Audible, Spotify, or, or Google Play. Your five-star comments and reviews mean the world to us, and we'd love to read them each week as well. And, of course, you can reach us at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com for maybe some comments you want to read to us that are a little more anonymous. So we'd love to hear your comments. A big thank you to KW Cages for sponsoring this podcast episode. And again, don't forget to use the code THERABBITRY when making your next purchase on kwcages.com for orders over $75 or more, and you get $10 off. All right, Brian, you got a quote for us this week? I do. Actually, this quote came from our guest, Carol Green, um, who sent this to you after the interview. It's, it's interesting, and you mentioned this, and I get it too. A lot of the guests will contact us after the interview. Sometimes they say, oh, I wish I would have said this or that, or they critique themselves. And, you know, it's funny because I always think that they do a wonderful job, and we hear <laughs> great feedback I. about every episode, even though, I mean, I critique myself. I catch myself stumbling <laughs> over words sometimes when I get going too fast. Um, but we're always our own worst critics. Welcome to my world. Okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep going. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, uh, why did I try to talk, start talking? About it? Like, <laughs> I totally tripped over this word. Um, but anyway, um, this quote is from Carol, and I really, really loved it. It pertains to so much we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. She says, I don't think I emphasized one thing enough. At this time, when often both parents have demanding careers and kids are able to spend so much time on social media, the activities involved the entire family, like raising and showing rabbits, are absolutely required. I cherished all the time we spent together, whether it was at a rabbit show, cleaning cages, or playing with the baby bunnies. It really was worth every minute. I love it so much. It makes me want to have a family of my own with kids showing rabbits. Just uh, warms my heart when I got that text from Carol this morning. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, talk rabbits and talk AVs. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.